Amen. Folks, as I've mentioned over and over already, the book of Romans is all about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in laying out the gospel as only a scholar of the law could do, Paul began with the bad news first, really a a universal condemnation of all people. In the first three chapters, Paul addressed three different groups of individuals. Okay, you guys notice I repeat myself over again and over again because I want you to know the book of Romans. By the time we're done, I want you to know this book. All right? So there's a method to the madness. He began with the outwardly immoral, unbelieving Gentiles, including the group that we looked at last week, right? Those who had never heard of the gospel. We saw that in 118 through 32, and then again in 212 through 16. And it made sense for Paul to begin with the Gentiles because he was writing to the pinnacle of the Gentile world at that time, which was what? Rome. Next... He addressed the outwardly moral people, the moralist, and this could be Jew or Gentile, right? Showing that they too fall short of God's perfect standard. These are the people who wore their morality on their sleeve, the the good person, right? And now in verses 17 through 29, after confronting the Gentiles and the moralists with their undeniable sinfulness, Paul turns his attention to the Jews, And he specifically the Jews. And he asks the question, so are the Jews to whom was given the law and the prophets also lost? And once again, Paul's resounding answer is yes, they too are lost. The Jews were going to be the most difficult group to convince that they were as culpable before God as the others. And also that they too deserve God's righteous condemnation. Outwardly religious people oftentimes are the most difficult to talk about the gospel. Has that been your experience as well? It has been mine. But Paul wasn't concerned with being popular or, or keeping the Roman pews and coffers filled. What concerned him is what should concern each and every one of us, and that is being faithful to God and God's word, no matter what the cost. And I hope that you guys, and that fits perfectly in, in line with our new mailer. Doesn't matter what the cost, let us be found faithful, amen? And I really mean that. Most Jews of Paul's days were blinded by their own religiosity, their own religious heritage. But since Paul had once been in those same shoes, he was very much aware of the danger of trusting one's heritage. You guys will remember Paul's pedigree. He was circumcised on the eighth day, a descendant of the tribe of Benjamin, raised in the great city of Jerusalem, a student of the famous Jewish rabbi Gamaliel and a Pharisee of Pharisees. And that's found in Philippians 3, verses 5 and following. So as Paul begins his condemnation of the Jewish people here in chapter 2, don't think of Paul as a Jewish turncoat, right? In other words, he wasn't the Benedict Arnold of the Jewish nation, nor was he in any way being anti semitic On the contrary, we're going to see later in the book of Romans that one of Paul's greatest desires was to see his fellow Jewish brothers and sisters saved, that they would recognize Jesus as the promised Messiah. And we'll see that in Romans chapter 9. But Paul also knew that there was a huge stumbling block of religiosity, tradition, and hypocrisy making nearly impossible for the Jews to be able to see their long-awaited Messiah. And the irony of their blindness was that all the Jewish rituals were actually designed by God to lead the Jewish people into a deeper knowledge and understanding of himself and to recognize the Messiah when he came. But that had all been lost in a, amidst a jumbled mess of man-made rules and regulations. Judaism had become a religion instead of a relationship. 
Most Jews believe that they were going to make it to heaven simply based upon their national heritage. And thus Paul's message must have seemed over-the-top radical to them. But brothers and sisters, make no mistake, that same danger applies to us as well. That same danger. Being a Christian is not a matter of religious ritual, going to church, doing good deeds. Instead, it's an issue of the heart and really a relationship. Now, there are many religious people who are on their way to hell, and the tragedy is they don't even realize it. Folks, most of the, the largest uh, denominations have stopped preaching the gospel a very, very long time ago. And so what used to be true of Judaism and the Jews, we look back and the descriptions that, that Jesus had from, of them in the gospels pretty much could be the same thing that he would say of our modern day denominations today. Beloved, unless the truth of Jesus Christ touches and changes your heart, then whatever you might call it, it is not true Christianity. It's nothing more than religion. And so with that as a bit of background for our text this morning, let's go ahead and stand together for the reading of God's most powerful word. And it's found in Romans 2, 17 through 29. We're going to finish up chapter 2 today, Lord willing. But if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God, and know his will, and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, verse 20, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth. You therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. Verse 25. For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law. But if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirement of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you who through having the letter of the law and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? Verse 28, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. And you may be seated. It's quite a lot there, isn't there? There is. You just had to break it down and, and go slowly, verse by verse, so we can understand Paul's argument here. Again, Paul begins his indictment of the Jews by listing three great advantages that the Jews had over the Gentiles. Okay, let's look at verses 17 through 20. And this is 1A in your outline, three incredible advantages. 17 through 20, but if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth. And we'll stop right there. And the first thing that Paul does is to highlight the Jewish name. Look at the first part of verse 17 once again with me. But if you bear the name Jew... We'll stop right there. God's chosen people, Israel, took great pride in their Jewish name. 
Now, in the past, they had been referred to as Hebrews, a name possibly referring back to the man named Eber, a descendant of Noah's son Shem, and an ancestor of Abraham. They've also been called Israelites. Israel was the name that God gave to Jacob after his struggle with God at Peniel near the brook of Jabbok. You'll remember that in Genesis 32 and Genesis 35. And the, na- the name was later applied to all of Jacob's descendants. They were Israelites, right? Because Jacob's name was changed to Israel. But by the first century, their most common designation was Jew. And that name came from the tribe of Judah. Judah was one of the 12 sons of Jacob as well as the name of the southern kingdom of Israel after the kingdom split into following King Solomon's reign. You remember Jeroboam and Rehoboam, right? But it was far more than just a name connecting them to a geographical spot. The Jewish name represented both their racial and their religious heritage. And so they wore the name Jew with a great sense of honor and pride because the Jews were God's chosen people. And they were privileged above all the other uh, nations in this world. How? Well, we can list off a number of them. Paul tells us they were part of God's covenant, right? They had received his promises. They had been given all the prophets, all the kings. Just go back in the Old Testament. They had been blessed with the promise of the Messiah who would come through their lineage, I don't know what you guys all, maybe Italian and French and German or whatever else is out there, right? But none of us could say that 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 is the case unless you're Jewish. And beyond all that, they had been given God's special revelation, the scriptures. It had come through the Jews. And that's what Paul brings up next. The second great advantage that the Jews had been given was their holy book. Look at verses 17 and 18. He tells us, but if you bear the name Jew, he says this, and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential being instructed out of the law. All those things come from the book, correct? Other nations might have been able to boast in their great men of war, their great men of science and poetry and art, but no one could say with the Jews that they had been chosen to be the recipients, the lone sole recipients of God's word. No other nation. The Greeks had Plato and Aristotle, but the Jews had been given the law of God on Mount Sinai, written on two Stone tablets by the very finger of God himself. But the Jewish people, by and large, valued their holy scriptures for all the wrong reasons. That's the sad thing about it. Certainly, there always has been God's remnant. He's kept his remnant alive throughout the centuries. But I'm talking by and large. They treasured their law mainly because it was a huge part of their heritage as Jews. But beloved, make no mistake, we too can make the same mistake, could we not? We can, we, can, we can treat the Bible in much the same manner that they treated it. We can relegate it to being a special piece of our heritage as Christians, but forget to read it and to really get to know our God through it. By, will of, by way of illustration, listen to the experience of a painter named John Underhill. He said this, in January 1984, I was painting the home of an 89-year-old lady in Spokane. She had a large family Bible prominently displayed on the coffee table, and she told me one day that it was 116 years old in a priceless heirloom. I commented on how remarkable that was and added, it doesn't matter how old the Bible might be, it's what's on the inside that matters. She immediately replied, oh, I know. That sure is the truth. Why, we have family records and births and marriages and deaths that go so far back, all recorded in that Bible. We can never replace them. Now, we might chuckle at a story like that. At least I hope you're chuckling. (laughs) 
But it's a good illustration of the way that Jews viewed the law as a great piece of their national heritage instead of seeing it as the doorway into knowing their God. And because the Jews had God's law, they, unlike any other nation around them, knew God's moral will. They knew what God wanted. Yes, as we've seen before, the Gentiles have the moral law written on their hearts, right? But that's in just very, very broad strokes. But they had, the Jews had specifically what God desired for them. So the Jews knew right from wrong. And they didn't mind letting others know, as is witnessed by the next couple of verses. Look at verses 19 and 20. He goes on, And are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of the knowledge and of the truth. So the third positive advantage that Paul lists here is a series of four claims that indicate that the Jews thought what they thought about themselves. And it's 3B in your outline. It's the ability to teach. First, Paul says that they claim to be what? Guides to the blind. Guides to the blind. Second, they claim to be lights to those who are in darkness. Third, they claim to be correctors or instructors of those who are foolish. And fourth, they claim to be teachers of the immature. The Jews not only felt secure in what they knew about God's moral standards, but they also felt secure in in what they taught. And they thought of themselves as the most competent teachers of the spiritually unwise. And to our ears, what does that sound like? The height of pride and arrogance. But please note that Paul never contradicts them. Never contradicts him. In other words, Paul agreed that the Jews at least had the potential to be such teachers because they had been given God's special revelation, God's word, the Holy Bible. And because they had been given the scriptures, they were able to be guides to the blind. They had the ability to be lights to those who are in darkness. Do we not have that same ability? Folks, as born-again Christians, they had the ability to be instructors of the foolish and teachers of the immature. But there was still a major problem. These were all outward works and had absolutely nothing to do with what was going on in their hearts. And think again about the three advantages that Paul lists here. He says, he lists a name, a book, and the ability to teach and instruct others. Again, none of those things were wrong or sinful. On the contrary, they truly, truly were advantages that the Jews had. However, none of these things automatically changed their, their hearts. So, in like manner, we could do the exact same thing, pretty much. I'm a Christian, right? I have a book. I know the right things to say or to teach. I have the truth. None of these things change their heart. It's nothing more than the pride of race, religion, and knowledge for the Jews without any corresponding heart transformation. And Paul is about to point out that unless these Jewish advantages changed their hearts, they would in reality be nothing more than Jewish disadvantages. Because to whom much has been given, what? Much is required. So let's look at 2A in your outline, two devastating charges. How could such wonderful blessings actually become disadvantages? And look with me at the next couple of verses where Paul lists off for us two devastating charges against the Jews. The first is found in verses 21 through 24. All right, this is holy words versus unholy deeds. Verse 21, you therefore, you, you therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? This is like the umbrella term, okay? 
Go back to this one again and again. You can underline this one. The others fall underneath it. You who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blaspheme among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. And we'll stop right there. The Jews, the Jewish lives reflected orthodoxy. Do you know what that means? Orthodoxy? That is right doctrine. So when I use the word orthodoxy, I mean right doctrine. But in practical terms, they fell short of orthopraxy. There's another 25 cent word for you. It's real easy. That just means right practice. Orthodoxy, right doctrine, orthopraxy, right practice. So their orthodoxy failed to produce orthopraxy, or to put it more simply, they spoke holy words, but lived unholy lives. How's that? A little easier. So Paul presents his readers with five specific questions, really five specific charges, all pointing to the same devastating charge, and that is one of religious hypocrisy. And think about, again, the great denominations. If Jesus were to come back today, would he not be saying essentially the same thing? Again, there is a need for people to hear sound doctrine, folks, and hence our flyer is is uh, one of those things to help people to see that. It really is. God had warned in the Old Testament against such hypocrisy. Just write down these verses. Look, go back to these. Psalm 50, verses 16 and 17. Listen to this. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to tell of my statutes and to take my covenant in your mouth? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. Yikes. And perhaps Paul was thinking in this psalm when he penned his first question in verse 21. Look at verse 21 now. We're back in Romans chapter 2. You therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? And the answer what? Was a resounding no. They weren't doing that. They hadn't done that. By and large, the Jews were expert at telling others what to do, how to live. But when it came to living up to those same exact standards themselves, they failed miserably. When we were living in Germany, and when we were about to have our seventh child, or about, yeah, at that time, I was then required by German law to get a commercial bus driver's license in order to transport my own family. That's how crazy it was. So I studied hard, unbelievable, passed the written examination, which included, amidst a whole bunch of other stuff, but two whole chapters on a bus's hydraulic braking system. Think about this, all in German. You know what I'm saying? Had to learn all this new vocabulary, all in German, um, and how to fix it myself as well, if, it, if my commercial bus were to break down someplace. <laughs> and finally met with a driving instructor to begin the many required hours of supervised driving in Berlin. And after that first, dri- that first drive with my instructor, um, he said, Herr Green, it's obvious that you can drive this bus, so do you want to do this the easy way or the hard way? And I said, well, what do you mean by that? He said, the hard way meant many hours of driving a small bus all around Berlin with this guy. And the easy way would be to pay him as if I had done all the driving and then go immediately and take my driving test. And I asked him if it was illegal to take the test without actually putting in the hours. And he said that technically it was. So I told him that I was a Christian pastor and I couldn't do anything that was illegal. Now, truth be told, I would have much rather have skipped all the mandatory hours of training. But if I did that, I was, wouldn't be able to sleep at night. That's what I told him. And interestingly enough, that instructor, a, a self-proclaimed atheist answered. He said, 
Ja, das stimmt. Man soll nicht Wasser predigen und Wein saufen. You guys should all be laughing at this point. That is, yeah, you're right. A person shouldn't preach water and chug wine. Even a hardened atheist can spot religious hypocrisy, the very sin which Paul was accusing the Jews of right here in our text. Paul's second question was similar. You who preach that one should, should not steal, do you steal? The answer once again was, the implied answer is once again, yes. Despite the very clear command in the Mosaic law not to steal, stealing was a very common problem in, the, in ancient Judaism. As a matter of fact, just a couple examples in the book of Amos, the prophet wrote about those who stole by making, you guys remember this in Amos 8.5, the bushel smaller and the shekel bigger. All right, let's, uh, let's increase the weight. So if they had to bring grain in, they're going to have to give us more grain for that same shekel weight. And also wrote of those who cheated or stole by using dishonest scales. Again, Amos 8.5. In Malachi, God accused the Jews of robbing him by withholding their tithes and offerings. Malachi 3.8.9. When Jesus cleansed the temple during the last week of his earthly life, he drove out everyone who was buying and selling in the temple and even turned over the tables of the money changers and said that they had made God's house into a robber's den. In other words, they had perfected the art of stealing without looking dishonest at all. So it very much was a problem. Paul's third question followed close on the heels of the second. Verse 22, you who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? And the answer here too is yes. They were guilty. Many Jewish men tried to circumvent the Mosaic law against adultery by divorcing their wives and marrying other women to whom they were attracted. And they simply had to uh, provide a, a certificate of divorce. They had to do, in other words, they had to get the paperwork right, right, in their own mind's eye. That was never God's intent. Jesus went further and even showed that a lustful looks are the same as the sin of adultery, just carried out at a heart level. So brothers and sisters, it's much easier to preach against others' immorality than to stay pure yourself, correct? It goes for all of us. And so each and every one of us needs to work hard to set up hedges of protection within our own lives and marriages. Thank you, brother, for that amen. Paul's fourth question was also found in verse 22. You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? And once again, the answer here was yes. Now, this question is a little different, isn't it? Here we see the religious Jews condemning one sin while practicing not the same sin as in the other questions, but a different sin. Apparently, some Jews at that time were thinking that they were doing God a favor by stealing from pagan temples, robbing their idols. I know how to stop this idolatry. We'll go take their golden statues. That'll do it. Perhaps they thought they were striking a blow at idolatry by doing such things, but two wrongs never make a right, correct? It's never right to do wrong to do right. Paul was quite clearly calling them on their hypocrisy and addressing a situation which his readers understood perfectly well. There are plenty of situations in which we are just as hypocritical in our culture. For example, we tend to uh, condemn drunkenness in others, but we condone gluttony in ourselves. It's my comfort food, we say. Beloved, it's a height of hypocrisy for us to assign rank to different sins, right? Looking down our noses on other people as worse sinners than we think that we are instead of allowing our hearts to be broken over our, our own sin first and foremost. Looking in that mirror first and foremost rather than just turning around and showing everybody else how they are. Now Paul's last question was this one in verse 23. You who boast in the law, through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? And here too the answer was a resounding yes. When church people behave like hypocrites, the good name of our God 
is dragged through the mud. So what was Paul's, Paul's point with these five questions? These five rhetorical questions? He was very clearly calling the Jews on the carpet for all of their religious hypocrisy. Religious people have always been good at telling other people what to do and what not to do, how to live and how not to live, and not doing it themselves. And that was the Jewish disadvantage. Yes, the Jews had been given God's law. They knew his moral will. They were confident in their ability to teach others. Those things were all true and they were all real advantages, but the Jews didn't live up to what they taught to others. Beloved, God has a very good word for someone who says one thing and does another. It rhymes with hypocrite. Call them hypocrites. And remember, Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior, God in the flesh, saved his most hard-hitting and condemning words, not for the outwardly immoral people of his day, but rather for the religious hypocrites of his time. So why does God hate religious hypocrisy so much? He tells us right here in verse 24. Look at it. For the name of God is what? Blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. Yikes. Paul's statement here in verse 24 is actually a quote from Isaiah 52 5. He's quoting Isaiah. Listen to what one author said. God's name is tantamount to his very being, to the essence of who he is. And so to blaspheme his holy name is to blaspheme the very essence of his being. Paul introduces a bitter irony here because this name, excuse me, is a very word which none of the religious Jews would ever dare speak because they considered it so holy. And so while not doing so with their lips, think about this. They did, in fact, blaspheme God's name with their what? With their lives. The author goes on and says, Our lives often speak much louder than our lips, which is a powerful reminder for all who name the name of Jesus as their Lord. Unbelievers are always watching. Wow. So Paul summarizes his first charge against the Jews is that of religious hypocrisy. And they claim to be all these great things to the Gentiles, right? But in reality, they were driving people away from the the God of the universe. They weren't attracting people through their own holy, godly lives to him. They're actually driving them away. And friend, again, you can see the application here too, can't you? I hope you can. Danger goes for us as well. The sermons you live out in your everyday lives are far more important than the ones that you preach. Parents, don't just preach good sermons to your, to your kids in, in their family devotions or, or uh, men to your wives, but show your children in your own life, in your own marriage, what it looks like. Don't tell your kids that they should be reading their Bibles if you're not reading your own Bible on a consistent basis. Kids can just turn around and say, hypocrite. Don't tell others that they need to be in prayer if you don't make prayer a priority in your own life. They want to see someone genuinely growing. They want to see someone living out God's word as consistently as they possibly can. They want to see God working in our lives so they can confidently confidently follow us as we follow Christ. They also want to see that when we sin, and we all will, unfortunately, that's Romans 7, that we will humble ourselves, confess ourselves, and then get back up again. Folks, in all my, all my years of following different leaders and different, having different professors, it was the ones that, that truly lived out their Christian life that I loved to follow. I have no problem being the second guy. You know what I'm saying? 
if he's a man that you could truly follow. He's saying, hey, follow me as I follow Christ. It's a joy to be underneath that type of leadership. It really is. So men, may we truly be that way for our wives and our kids. And young men, grow up to be that. Aim for that. Listen to the words of poet Edgar Guest, who wrote in the early 1900s. Listen to this poem. He said, I'd rather see a sermon than hear one any day. Now you know where I got my sermon title. (laughs) I'd rather one walk with me than merely tell me the way. The eye's a better pupil and more willing than the ear. Find counsel is confusing, but examples always clear. The best of all the preachers are the men who live their creeds. For to see good put in action is what everybody needs. I soon can learn to do it if you'll let me see it done. I can watch your hands in action, but your tongue too fast may run. And the lecture you deliver may be very wise and true, but I'd rather get my lessons by observing what you do. For I might misunderstand you and and the high advice you give, but there's no misunderstanding how you act and how you live. One good man teaches many. Men believe what they behold. One deed of kindness notice is worth 40 that are told. Who stands with men of honor learns to hold his honor dear. For right living speaks a language which to everyone is clear. Though an able speaker charms me with his eloquence, I say, I'd rather see a sermon than hear one any day. So, men and women, men and women, does your life live out a sermon each and every day? To your friends, your family, your spouse, your neighbors, Someone once told or said to Charles Spurgeon, the Bible is the light of the world. Spurgeon objected saying, how can that be? The world never reads the Bible. He went on to say, the Bible is the light of the church and the church is the light of the world. The world reads the Christian, not the Bible. (laughs) Once again, amen. So ask yourself, does your life point to the Savior? Or are you, through your hypocrisy, driving others far away from him. Now, Paul turns to the second charge against the Jews, and we find that in verses 25 through 27. Let's read these together. For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law. But if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you who through having the letter of the law and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? Let's stop right there. Paul's first indictment against the Jews had to do with the gap between their holy words and their unholy deeds. His second charge against them addressed their outward ritual as opposed to their inward reality. And we don't understand circumcision the way the Jews did, granted. For the Jews, circumcision was a sign that a man belonged exclusively to God. God gave circumcision to Abraham and to all his descendants after him as a sign and a seal of the sacred relationship that existed between God and his people, the Jews. One commentator noted that to the faithful, Obedient Jews, circumcision was a symbol of God's covenant, his blessings, his goodness, in his protection of his chosen people. However, the physical mark, listen carefully, the physical mark of circumcision was meant to be accompanied by a deep spiritual commitment to God. But when the deep devotion to God dissipated, all that was left was a spiritual ritual. And that's what happened over the years among the Jews. By the first century, many rabbis spoke of circumcision as if it were synonymous with a person's salvation. One of them even said that no circumcised Jewish man will see hell, quote, unquote. Another one taught, all the circumcised have their part in the world to come. So you kind of get an idea of what they thought then. However, Paul makes two very important points in regards to this faulty understanding of circumcision. Verse 25, he says that circumcision is only valuable if it's accompanied by a changed life. Again, remember, he's talking to the Jews here. 
All right. For indeed, verse 25, for indeed circumcision is a value if you practice the law. But if you're a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. And Paul's second point is found in verses 26 and 27. Paul said it's better to be uncircumcised and truly obey God than to be circumcised and break his law. In other words, the outward ritual doesn't mean a whole lot. That first point wouldn't have been too hard for the Jews to swallow. The idea that outward obedience needed to be accompanied by a right heart is found all throughout the Old Testament. So that wouldn't have been a a real large pill to swallow. But the second point would have been much, much more difficult for them. Look at these two verses once again, verses 26 and 27. So if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirement requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will, not, will he not judge you who, though having the letter of the law and circumcision, are a transge- transgressor of the law? Here Paul is saying that a man could be acceptable to God without first being circumcised. And this thought would have been absolutely anathema to the Orthodox Jew. How could anybody ever be be right with God if they're uncircumcised? And you remember the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. Was that not the issue? Galatians, the book of Galatians was the same thing. Same issue. You have to, in order to be a good Christian, you have to first be circumcised and follow the law. Then you can add Christ to all of that. That's what they taught. Now, before you start thinking that was then and this is now, Folks, this, once again, this passage has incredible relevance for us here in America. Many people associate baptism with circumcision. And some even teach that unless you're baptized, you cannot be saved. And that's a lie straight from the pit of hell. It has been so successfully promoted that millions of people believe it. As a matter of fact, growing up Catholic, that's what I used to believe. As an infant, I had been sprinkled by some priest, and according to Catholic doctrine, that guaranteed my salvation. Beloved, how many millions and millions of people are hoping to gain entrance into heaven based upon being sprinkled as a baby? Now, baptism is good, and it's right. As a matter of fact, next weekend, I think we're having one. (laughs) Every born-again believer should be baptized. But unless something has already happened in your heart, baptism is absolutely useless. Not going to do anything. Not going to make you, you're not going to wash away any sins by getting in that water over there, right? (laughs) One commentator wrote wrote that apostasy always moves the religious focus from the inward to the outward, from humble obedience to empty formality. So well said. So well said. Apostasy always moves the religious focus from the inward to the outward, from humble obedience to empty formality. For nothing, nothing can save you except belief in the atoning work of Jesus Christ. Amen? It is Christ plus, Christ alone plus nothing. Baptism can't save you. Taking the Lord's Supper can't save you. Giving to charity can't save you. Going to Cornerstone Bible Church can't save you. Now, please listen carefully. None of those things are bad. Actually, they're all really rather good. But if you base your hope of eternal life on any one of them or even all of them, then you're making the same mistake that the Jews made 2,000 years ago. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Now, Paul's indictment of the Jews is almost finished. He concludes this section by describing the type of religion that God does approve of. Folks, listen, I know this is a more complicated passage of Scripture. If you need to go back and and listen to this again just in the uh, quietness of your own home, please feel free to do that. This is more complicated. Some of the arguments that Paul's going to make, especially when we get into the next section of of salvation, um, are a little bit more complicated, but you just have to go through it slowly, okay? Look at Romans Romans 2, 28 and 29. 
For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. The type of religion that God approves is not based upon whether or not a man has Abraham's blood flowing through his veins. That's not going to do it. It's not based upon whether or not a man has a mark of circumcision on his body. That won't do it either, guys. What matters to God is inward sincerity and purity. Where's your heart, men? Where's your heart, ladies? A real Jew, that is a God-honoring. He's still talking to the Jewish people here. A God-honoring Jew is one who has a pure and godly life, right? Not just being, I'm a, I'm a relative of Abraham. I'm good to go. Nope, not going to do it. Now, let me pause and make something absolutely clear here. This passage is not teaching that all true believers are Jews or that the church has displaced Israel, inherits Israel's blessings and promises. That's not what I believe this is saying here. Paul is simply saying that one's national heritage or outward religious ritual is not enough. In order to be a true Jew or a Jew that God is pleased with, then there, uh, there, then there must also be an inward reality, an inward sincerity. True circumcision is a matter of the heart, not just a medical procedure of the flesh. It's a spiritual reality. Whereas One's old nature, one's old sinful heart is removed and replaced with a new nature and a new heart. Religion that God approves of is a religion of a transformed heart and life. And I hope you guys get that. Beloved, God has always been more interested with the inward than the outward. All right? Do you remember what he said to Samuel? Remember Samuel the prophet? Remember the Jews were saying, hey, give us a king, Samuel. Tired of you and your sons, basically, right? He said, we want a king. He said, just like all the other nations. So God sent Samuel um, to David's oldest brothers. Well, first off, you had Saul, but that's another story for another day. But then Samuel saw David's older, oldest brother, Eliab, and he thought to himself, surely this is God's chosen man to be king over Israel. This guy was tall and handsome, and looked the kingly part. But this is what I love, verse seven. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For God sees not as a man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord, what? Looks at the heart. Amen. So what's the bottom line? Bottom line is this. God is looking at our hearts. God is not impressed with our outward religious behavior. The only question that really matters is if you've trusted Jesus Christ and him alone as your savior. And so folks, listen, as we conclude this morning's message, let me ask you, how does this all apply to us? How does this all apply to us? First, ask yourself if you're a spiritual hypocrite, right? Remember that those, all those rhetorical questions that Paul lists off for us? In other words, do you condemn in others what you yourself are secretly doing? In the words of, of the Germans, are you preaching water, right, while imbibing in wine? Or do you condemn others' particular sins while excusing different sins in your own life? Friend, if you are a spiritual hypocrite, then before you, before, or then I would encourage you to keep your mouth closed and get your life right with God before you begin preaching to others. Now, is there a place for preaching and teaching others? Absolutely there is. A lot of times people say, well, you know, I don't want to listen to you until your life is all perfectly fine. Well, when will that happen? Well, when you see Christ. <laughs> so that cannot be the case. But there cannot be any glaring sins in our lives that we're just missing and we're going to go 
point out all the sins in somebody else's life? Second, are you just going through the motions without putting Christ first in your life? There are going to be myriads of church attenders in hell. Do you realize that? Myriads of them. They trusted in the religious things that they did to grant them favor in God's eyes. But all the while, they have no idea that they are still God's enemies. That they still don't, they're, they're still not forgiven from their sins. In one of his sermons, George Whitfield tells of a strange and terrifying dream in which an angel transported him to the gates of hell. When he arrived, he cried out to the gate, gatekeeper, have you any Methodists in hell? Oh, yes, we have plenty of Methodists down here. Have you any Lutherans in hell? Plenty of Lutherans too. What about Catholics? Hell is filled with Catholics. Have you any Baptists in hell? More than we can count. Have you any Presbyterians? By the hundreds. With that, Whitfield sadly took his leave of hell. Suddenly, he found himself transported to the gates of heaven where he met St. Peter. Again, this is his dream. St. <laughs> Peter, have you any Methodists in heaven? No Methodists up here. Have you any Catholics in heaven? I'm sorry to say no Catholics have ever come this way. What about Presbyterians? No Presbyterians either. What about Baptists? Not a one in all the years I've been here. Any Lutherans? We have no one that answers to that name. Finally, in desperation, Whitfield cried out, Who have you in heaven then? And the answer came back, Christians. Only Christians. So the last question I leave you with, one of the last, friend, are you a real Christian? Or are you a Christian in name only? Think about it. Because this is the most important question you will ever be asked. And for the sake of your immortal soul, my dear, dear brothers and sisters, you must, you must, you must get the answer right. Amen? Father, we thank you. And we can come to the close of chapter 2 in, in the book of Romans, a glorious book. And Lord, to all the, all the mistakes that we see made, whether in the Old Testament or even in the New Testament, and the, the religiosity of the Jewish people that they prided themselves upon, Lord, we understand that that same danger can apply to us as believers as well. That we could be churchgoers our whole life, do all the outwardly religious things that are not necessarily bad, that are actually good, but still be a million miles away from you. And Lord, that is not our desire, not at all. Lord, break our hearts, cleanse our hearts, replace our hearts of stone with hearts of flesh that beat only for you and only after you. Pray that for all those who don't yet know you. And for those who do, Lord, I pray that we would just walk, as Ephesians 4.1 says, walk in a manner worthy of that high calling. Lord, we love you. And thank you so much for loving us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. All God's people.